Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. If this is your first time listening to the 10% Happier podcast, A, welcome. And B, if you like the show, do me a favor. Take a second and subscribe, rate the podcast, and if you really want to hook me up, tell some friends about how they too can find us. Now here's the show. From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I guess I'm now a, uh, a memoirist. I've only written one book, but I, I suppose you could call it a memoir. The person who is widely acknowledged to be one of the master memoirists in American culture, though, is uh, Mary Carr. She's a poet by training, but she's written a bunch of best-selling memoirs, including The Liars Club and Lit. Uh, in which she tells very colorful stories about her own life, uh, which has been truly, truly fascinating. Uh, and in recent years, one of the interesting parts of uh, Mary Carr's life is that she's become a meditator. So I invited her on, and we had a fascinating discussion. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here's Mary. So the question I want to ask you first is, apparently you got into meditation. How did that happen? I found myself newly sober in a mental institution. And when you find yourself in a mental institution, a lot of suggestions that people have made that you were too cool to take, you're suddenly, you realize, you know, my approach to things, I'm in a mental institution. <laughs> you know, or, it's just not working. So um, I began to uh, pray and meditate, pray on my knees, and uh, pursued initially and still centering, you know, on uh, sort of non-religious centering meditation where I counted my breaths one to ten is what I started with. And I've, I've since branched out into various forms, but that still uh, is a large part of my practice. So that was, I'm trying to think, 26 years ago, 27 years ago now I started. Let, let me just back up for a second for those, there may be some people who don't know your story. For those people, tell them how did you end up in a mental institution? How did I end up yeah. in a mental institution? Hmm. Well, it's a, I mean, in some ways, it's a story that fills many profitable volumes of my memoirs, <laughs> you know, Liars Club, Cherry and Lit. But, uh, uh, well, I think, you know, I, I, I've been told I come from a dysfunctional family, and I always say that's any family with more than one person in it. So, uh, well, yours, I mean, I, having listened to uh, the line share of, of Lit, uh, Pretty special in a lot of regards. Yeah, my mother was married seven times. They were both my parents were drunks. I was raped when I was a child. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't. I mean, the great thing about a childhood like mine is you're upwardly mobile. The minute you get, <laughs> you leave the house. You know, if you don't go to the pen, state penitentiary or the loony bin. Um, but I think I was depressed my whole life. Really, when I look back, I had a suicide attempt as a child when I was about ten. Um, and uh, and I had what was called, I was married, I had a baby, I was living outside Cambridge, Massachusetts, with a very patient husband, and um, I was super depressed. When, and when I, sort of when I quit drinking, I kind of awoke to that depression. I mean, uh, you know, alcohol is a depressant drug and it, it a aggravates depression, but at the time it also feels like anesthetic to you, mm -hmm. I think. So when I put that anesthetic down, the amount of noise in my head, uh, and none of it was good news. You know, it's, my mind had nothing optimistic to say. You know, every bruise was bone cancer. And, uh, you know, the Jaguar would get the parking place, and I would have to carry the baby on my hip, you know, for six blocks in a blizzard. You know, it was just, I, I, I was memorizing the bad news, I think, for my whole life. And um, and that's that's what that's what led to you landing in a mental institution, or was it quitting? So it was after you gave up alcohol. That I was I was nine months sober, and that was a triumph. But um, you know, I've been talking to a lot of people. I, I don't go into a lot of details about it, but I've been talking to other people who quit drinking, and um, I had mental health professional I spoke to, and and. Uh, People were suggesting to me that I needed to develop a spiritual practice, that quitting drinking was part of it, but that I also needed to find a way to think about my life in terms of service to other people, which really didn't interest me. I was interested in service to myself and uh, that I developed some sense of a higher power. And I'd been 
an agnostic my entire life. Even as a child, we had no God in our house. And so... Yeah, your mother was interested in Buddhism. She was in, She was sort of interested. My mother was a del, a little bit of a dilettante. I mean, she was also an intellectual in a place when there, where there weren't any in this kind of Texas backwater where I grew up. So... Um, she was in. She did yoga in 1956. I mean, wow. she was uh, ahead of her time, and she was a feminist, and she was a news reporter. She was a lot of interesting things, but but not really anybody with a disciplined practice in terms of anything, including you know being a parent, probably. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, I don't. I mean. I was just very depressed, and I got sober, and I got more depressed, and I developed a suicidal ideation, and it felt like the greatest defeat of my life uh, going into custodial care, you know, to check into a, you know, uh, McLean Hospital, which is, I call the mental Marriott, I think, in Lit. Uh, It was pretty nice. I mean, the campus, it looked like Harvard. I mean, it didn't look that different from Harvard College, so it was kind of a high-rent place to go in, and but while I was there, the people who'd been counseling me and sort of trying to steer me uh, in a direction of developing a prayer and meditation practice, I just decided. Uh, somebody said, "You know, what do you have to lose? You know, pray on your day, on your knees every day for thirty days, and see if you feel better." And I thought, "Well, I'm here for three weeks anyway," um, and I began to pray and meditate uh, there. We'll get to the meditation in a second. The prayer is what I wanted to ask you about first because. Yeah, I'm at the point in the book where you have repeated over and over again how what a sort of virulent atheist you were. Uh, you saw no evidence for a, the divine. So how did you get yourself to pray, and what sort of metaphysical uh, beliefs have you subsequently a- adopted, and how? Well, I I literally did it completely by rote. Uh, there was somebody had given me a book that had a prayer that's a Catholic prayer, the prayer of St. Francis, but I didn't know that then or I probably wouldn't have said it. But it's, you know, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there's hatred, let me sow love. Where there's conflict, pardon. Where there's doubt, faith. Where there's despair, hope. And I thought, oh, just saying these sentences, just as sentences to say, if you were saying a jump rope rhyme that said these things, you know, it's kind of like a positive affirmation. These aren't bad things to wish for, you know, to be a peaceful person. I'd never been particularly peaceful. I'm not that peaceful now. <laughs> but um, I'm unarmed, and that's a good thing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, when I began to pray that prayer, I literally I set it to the light fixture. Oh, and I also prayed. I asked to for help uh, not drinking. And... Uh, so I, I would get on my knees. I, I'd actually sort of started that before I was in the mental institution. I would get on my knees in the morning and say, keep me away from a drink. And I would get on my knees in the evening and say, thank you so for not drinking. So I didn't have a sense that some higher power or God or something metaphysical was keeping me sober. I thought I was like doing some kind of biofeedback or something with my big smart brain. I just thought, oh, I'm just thinking happy things, you know, the way you would watch Mr. Rogers and pretend, you know, he was really your friend. So I, I had zero um, uh, theology in my head, zero meta- metaphysics. I had no idea or concept of any kind of God. It was just completely rote, completely rote. And, and, um, and when I tried to do centering prayer, that breath counting thing, there was so much noise in my head. It was like being, uh, I, I, I mean, obviously you're a meditator. It's like being with a caged animal. Yeah, yeah, it, at best. It's like you're being, you're locked up with the enemy. Yes. And it's your, like, one, you know, you count one breath, you count two breaths. You're like, why did that SOB do the, mm, mm-hmm. and then, and just every resentment and gripe and f- terror. And it's like being locked in a room. And so... Um, but something started to happen, uh, both in the prayer and the meditation, is that um, I would get moments of quiet, and they begin to permeate uh, my life when I wasn't meditating. I developed uh, I, it, it's almost like a physical space. So that the only way I can I can describe it is that all my life, I mean, I'm somebody obviously with an active 
uh, mind and overactive mind, um, my head had been chattering like a capuchin monkey at me. And suddenly I would have these moments of quiet that were south of my neck is sort of the only way I could put. And I would have ideas that felt they didn't come from me because they were not the kind of idea I'd ever had. Mm. So um, I remember specifically being with my son was a toddler, a little bigger than that. And uh, our car broke down on Star Drive one day, and it was snowing, and we had to be somewhere, and I was late for something, and we didn't have AAA in those days, and we didn't have any money, and I had a flat, and uh, didn't have a, a jack in the car, didn't have a spare, and uh, it was a beautiful sunset. The weather was kind of coming in bad, but there was this piece of sky that was beautiful. And um, I just had this moment where it was like, well, you know, no tiger is eating me. You know, we'll get the – eventually we'll get the car fixed. It'll be okay. We'll find a way to pay for it. It'll be fine. And these people came up that I knew who were also people trying to quit drinking and wound up helping me fix a car. So it was like serendipity. I, I didn't think God brought the good people to help me change my car. Now I kind of think that. Now I kind of think that. And way. that's the leap I'm interested in. How do you get from that kind of uh, skepticism, and in your case, deep cynicism, to actually uh, believing that there may be uh, truly a higher power? Well, I began to, um, I began to make decisions based on uh, prayer. Uh, I, I began to, um, like someone advised me, I said, well, how do you know? You say God is telling you to do things. I mean, my mind tells me to like buy a gun and, and kill everybody on the subway. I mean, my, you know, my mind tells me all kinds of bad, none of it is particularly happy. Um, so how, what, how does God speak to you? And um, people began to tell me their experiences, and they would say things like, uh, you never get a long-term plan. And I'm thinking, well, what good is that? I mean, don't you want like a five-year plan from God? And there, people would say, well, no, like you'll get a – like in the moment, and it'll have a lot of quiet around it. And I'd never had any quiet in my head or in my life at all, really. Even when it was quiet, I my mind was – I was highly, highly anxious and very insecure and very afraid uh, most of the time. But I didn't perceive it that way. I didn't understand. Um, I guess I identified with my fears is the only way. So I guess there began to be, through prayer and meditation, uh, I guess the best way I can describe it, I have a – I talked to a young woman who's uh, – trying to get sober now has little kids and is frequently and no money and is doing everything she can do and is frequently frustrated by her children and calls me and says you know I'm screaming at my kids and and one day she called me and said you know, I'm screaming at my kids and and I think I've lost my mind like I think I've lost my mind I hit my daughter and I can't this is not who I want to be and and I think she thought I was going to scold her and I said and she said, but, but she was crying. She was quite hysterical. And I said, uh, okay, okay, okay. Well, who's noticing that you've lost your mind? Mm -hmm. who, who is telling you you've lost your mind? Who told you to call me? If you'd lost your mind, you'd be beating them. You know, you had a moment of loss of control, which many parents have, and obviously you don't want to hit them. And I don't need to tell you that. You know you don't want to hit your – you're just sad. You didn't want to hit her. And you did it anyway, and it's scary to you know. It'd be scary to me too. It's so that seems healthy. I mean, and then so I guess I began to have this noticer self that I identified with more than the voice of fear that was in my head, and I guess I began to think of that as God. Um, again, for a long time, I would say for three to five years, it had very secular terms on it. It would be like I had a sober self or I had a sane self or I had a, a self that was unafraid. And it didn't really feel external to me. I had a girlfriend who was literally a rocket scientist at MIT who was also trying to stay sober. And she prayed. And she said, oh, I have this sober self I pray to. And I thought, well, that's you know, harmless enough. But 
after making decisions out of this quietness, um, my life got better because I was acting, I mean, if you think of it in psychological rather than spiritual terms, I was acting less out of fear. And if I didn't know what to do, I would just not make a decision. Um, if if I was still had a lot of noise and fear, I would try to just postpone whatever the decision was, uh, what time I was supposed to teach. I don't know. Should I teach at 8 in the morning? Should I teach at 3 in the afternoon? I would pray about every little dumb decisions. Should I use this daycare provider or that daycare provider? Should, um, But also, um, should I take this job? I applied for jobs at Sarah Lawrence in Syracuse, and I was sort of we, uh, my then husband, my baby daddy, and I were talking about where we wanted to live. We'd been in Cambridge a long time. We were sort of sick of it. Um, and I turned down the job I now have at Syracuse through prayer. Uh, and the third time I was offered, and every time they came back with more money. And and the third time the guy called, it was strange. I just said, yes, I'll take the job. It was the strangest thing. It just felt very quiet. And he said, well, you know, I had the next person on the list. This was our last offer. But you're the hardest negotiator I've ever negotiated with. And I said. You're negotiating with God. <laughs> That's how I sort of felt. <laughs> I sort of felt like, you know, and later I met the guy and I got to know him. And it turned out he was sober. And I said, you won't believe this. But I like, I wasn't negotiating. I, if, I, if I were negotiating, I would have taken the first offer because I was so insecure and instead, I was, I don't know how I came to the decision. It, just when it got quiet enough, the decision got made. And so um, if you think about it, when you're, you know, and so, but then also weird things began to happen. Like I prayed on my knees for money. I, I had a girlfriend. She was a Harvard social theorist. And she said, well, why don't you pray for what you want? What do you pray for? And I'm like, you know, I pray to stand it. I pray to get through the day. And she's like, well, what do you want? I was like, well, I'd like, I made $9,000 this year. You know, I'm a poet. I'd like to generate more income. And she said, well, then pray for money. And I thought, oh, great. I'm like one of those crazy women who's putting her hand on the TV saying, Lord, send me, a, you know, $30. And literally, like three weeks later, I got this grant. I got a Whiting Writer's Award, which you can't apply for. And, you know, so it, it, it literally fell out of the blue. It's not as though I'd applied for it and was waiting to hear. Um so, and she said then, uh, that same person said then, oh, well, so now you believe in God. And I'm like, no, because they would have had to nominate me when I was still drinking and I wasn't praying. And so, so I guess you just decide in a way. Uh, there's, a, there's a point of decision. Um, the other thing this person made me do, which is incredibly puerile, um, but if you think of somebody as hard-headed as I am, it makes the most sense. She made me... <laughs> Make a gratitude list every day because I was such an ingrate for every letter of the alphabet. <laughs> this one was a Harvard social theorist. I think she wrote on Durkheim or something for her PhD dissertation. And so think of it. You know, I would say like, you know, for the apples that we bought, you know, for the – but then I noticed that I, that I was being grateful for things not – that I was actually grateful for, but things that I thought this invisible God I didn't believe in would take away from me if I didn't say I was grateful for them. So I realized sort of through this quietness that I already had all kinds of magical thinking and all kinds of superstitious nonsense in my head, even though I call myself this sort of rationalistic person. But I realized I thought I certainly believed in evil. I had no I had no problem believing in evil. And so I guess um, I began to make a decision. And then eventually, as you know, I don't know how far you are in my in lit, but eventually, um, strangely enough, I became a Roman Catholic. So, yeah, that's the – I'm, I'm not up to that point. So that's the – because I've that's Googled – That's the mystery. Yeah, well, I've Googled you, um, uh, and so I saw that you – that as part of the book, you – became sober and became a Catholic. Yeah, and so who knew? it's such a leap from where I am in your narrative. That's the part I'm, I'm trying to understand. Here's what and I then have. I want to actually talk more about meditation, but that this the, the metaphysical part, like how do you go from from 
doubting so severely to actually buying a pretty big body of theology? Well, the Catholic Church, everybody thinks about it in terms of its theology, and it's sort of like any theological structure. Um, People say, oh, well, I'm a cafeteria Catholic. Everybody's a cafeteria everything. I mean, Jesus, you know, was a cafeteria believer. If you buy the idea that he was in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be crucified. You know, it's not like he was saying, oh, yeah, crucify me. Oh, yeah, you know, who cares? You know, I'm so holy, I don't mind. Um, So um, my son decided he wanted to go to church. He was a little kid, came in in his, like, you know, Batman pajamas, um, and said, you know, I want to go to church. And I said, why? And he said, uh, I want to see if God's there, which is kind of like the only sentence he might have said. So we did this thing that we called Godorama, where anybody we knew who went to any kind of church or zendo or temple or anything, we would go with them to their place, you know. And so um I found myself in this Catholic church. I mean, there were a lot of interesting people there. Tobias Wolf was there, the writer who was a friend and colleague of mine at Syracuse. Um, turns out the Berrigans were there, those those crazy lefty uh, Jesuits. Uh, Jerry B- and Carol Berrigan were both members of that parish. But the priest was a guy I became very close to. Um, he was not a firebrand. He wasn't a Jesuit. He wasn't an intellectual. He wasn't, but he was somebody who was incredibly humble and not at all wet. I don't know how to explain it in that British terminology. You know, he was just very, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, just very matter-of-fact guy, but very kind and very humble. And um, so I would bring my son to Sunday school and most of the time, I'd bring a latte and a bunch of papers to grade and, like, sit on the back row and sort of, you know, grade papers and have a coffee uh, because I wanted to know what they were teaching him in this in this church. Um, and um, I got very moved, not by everybody said, oh, everybody, you know, writers, you know, they like the ritual. That I found kind of boring. I actually like it better now, but at the beginning I just found it dull because they just did the same thing over and over and it didn't seem interesting. But at the time, what I liked was the faith of the people. Um, There was a moment in Mass where uh, people call out their intentions, and that means that whatever they're hoping for, praying for, they say out loud. So they would say, a woman would say, you know, in gratitude for my son's heart surgery or my daughter's back from Afghanistan or, you know, my mother just died or we just got a job and we're thankful for that or whatever thing. And just think about it. If you're in a room full of people, think just imagine a restaurant. If suddenly, you know, there was the bubble visible over everybody's head where you could see what they were afraid of or what they were terrified about or what, you know, what burdens they carried, and something about, I was just, I would just cry every time in Mass when people were saying their things. I just thought, I would walk into the church and I would think, these are church people. You know, they looked very, you know, churchy compared to me, my little bohemian self. And uh, and then they would say those things, and, and I would tear up, and I would find myself feeling like them. Also, the thing I love about Catholicism, it's going to sound very dumb, but it's very carnal. It's very much about the body, you know, incarnate. That, that, that is opposed to, say, other Christian churches, that there's a body on the cross, you know. And so nobody's going to walk in and look at that body and think, oh, you haven't suffered. Like, you don't know anything about suffering, you know, that I think the I was always very aware of suffering and the presence of suffering, you know, a crucified Jesus suffering. I don't know. I just, I think people suffer a lot, and I think I've always been tenderhearted, I think. So, so I, get, I get why a lot of that would be moving and meaningful, but so I guess I'm trying to drill down on at what point did you make the leap to believing, and maybe you don't, um, that Jesus is the Son of God who was— 
uh, born immaculately and then uh, died and then rose from the dead. Uh, the, 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 ba- the basic fundamentals of Christianity. Um, I certainly believe in the resurrection. I, I, I read there's a group of sort of wild Jesuits called the Jesus Seminars that uh, do a lot of research on the historical sources. And, and one way I read, and maybe this is, uh, this is obviously disputed by the, the church, is that a virgin birth, the, the word virgin as it's used in the Greek Bible also refers to a woman who hasn't had children. So obviously that's not the rap uh, in the scriptures. But um, kind of a day at a time and a year at a time, um, I found myself going to Mass and being very moved and comforted by Mass and also the sacraments of you know, taking communion. I wound up taking communion. It was a very funny moment. I got kicked out of <laughs> of uh, instruction of, you know, there's a ritual for people where you're supposed to take instruction. I, anyway, I got in a fight with a lady who ran it. <laughs> she, she kicked me out. <laughs> and so um, so I go to this little parish, Irish parish priest, Joe Kane, and I say, you know, well, you know, I have to travel. And she says that I can't be baptized. And he says, look, why don't you just go talk to Toby? Toby's a friend of yours. Why don't you go talk to him about Jesus? You're always saying you think Jesus is creepy. I said, I do. I, I do. I think he's creepy. I think he's like, you know, this idea of somebody opening. My idea of hell, uh, somebody says in a poem, is this guy opening his shirt saying, look what I did for you. You know, it's just, who needs it, you know? And and so I, I started meeting with Toby and reading the Gospels, you know, the Greek Bible, with him and and having talks also with Father Joe about Jesus and and I saw that I had a lot of barnacles on him that I superimposed onto him a lot of stuff that I thought was churchy that wasn't necessarily true and I also noticed something I was I was involved in something called the Peace and Social Justice Committee which is the you know chain yourself to the nuclear reactor people. Um, and bring the orphans from El Salvador and get, you know, go to the prison. And and I noticed that all these people very into Jesus and also very into doing stuff for the poor, not just writing the check, but going down to El Salvador, going, building the houses, moving people into your home, taking care of, you know, children and prison ministries and food soup kitchens and all of this. And they all talked about Jesus, just Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I don't know how to explain why these people were attractive to me, but they were, um, they had a quality of, they were matter of fact. I don't know how to explain it, but they just didn't seem drippy. You know, like sometimes you go to a church, I, this is also true in Protestant churches, and I've seen it in temples, I've seen it in other religions, you know, where somebody does this really slow thing up at the front, you know, to show how holy they are. You know, have a priest who'll say the thing, everything's really slow. And and just people are drippy and kind of creepy, and you feel like they're, they're phony or insincere in some way. I just noticed that all these people were really into Jesus. They seemed very realistic, and they were talking in a very active way about prayer and meditation, and and, um, and I wound up doing something called the Ignatian Exercises um, eventually uh, because a friend of mine who was an Olympic swim coach had these three girls go to the Olympics from doing the spiritual exercises. So really, out of this totally selfish, venal, like, you know, Tony Robbins, like, do this and your life will get better, I thought, well, I'll do these exercises. Everybody who's into Jesus seems a lot happier than I am, so... I kind of don't get Jesus, so I'll do this and see how I feel. And um, and they taught many different kinds of meditation, um, many different kinds of prayer, methods of prayer, Lectio Divina, you know, where you pray with a religious scripture. Um, there's a visualization you do that friends of mine, George Saunders, who's a Tibetan Buddhist, and Michael Hare, who just died recently, uh, also a Tibetan Buddhist, said it was very much like something they did in their practice. Um, these different kinds of meditations and prayers. Um, and it's a 30-week thing that you do where you wind up praying like, I don't know, hour, hour and a half every day. So um, that was very, that's really where, 
Before then, I've got to say it was pretty vague. Uh, when I got baptized, I said to Father Joe, you know, I don't think the Pope is the ultimate religious authority. And he said, maybe you will someday. <laughs> he was like this theological ninja, you know. You'd, you'd go at him and I'd say, you know, I think women should be priests and I think we should practice open communion because if Jesus is such a good egg, you know, why would you have somebody to your house and not feed them? And And instead of him arguing with me, he'd say, I bet the Holy Father prays about that a lot. I mean, you just say this little sweet thing that— Isn't that just not answering the question? Sort of, yeah. <laughs> and yet you saw something aspirational in that. Um, I saw somebody who didn't want to betray his vows. Right. And, and yet who wanted me in his room. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deep D. Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deep D. Kapoor is a, a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the, the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, we love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. You know, there was a woman who'd gotten up on, who actually got up in the middle of mass one day and stormed up on the altar and, and threw a fit and ranting about the Vatican and the Pope and women priests and a bunch of stuff, and then said, I'm never coming back here until all this has changed and stormed out. And then I noticed like a few months later, um, she came back. And I, I asked Father Joe, I said, when did, how did you get Nancy to come back? He said, I just called her up and said, you know, Nancy, we really miss you. We wish you'd come back. It's <laughs> just like just a sweet guy, you know. I don't know. He had gay and lesbian masses, and and he was kind of a right wing guy, but he was somebody that, um, you know, there's something in Vatican too where they say you you there's something called informed conscience, which is kind of the great loophole for for Roman Catholics, where if in the moment the Holy Spirit you feel the Holy Spirit is guiding you to oppose church doctrine, so. They're about to burn somebody at the stake, and you have a chance to protect the person. And the church is saying, well, we've got to burn them at the stake. Well, 
maybe your conscience moves you to say, no, this is a bad idea. So Father Joe, I think, was um, very big on informed conscience. I promise our listeners that uh, I will um, start talking to you about more about meditation, but I, I'm just uh, I'm going to do one last question on, on your embrace of Christianity because I just think it's so interesting, and anybody who's read your book, um, or at least as far as I have in your book, will find it very interesting. You, you talk about Jesus, and I'm not an expert in, in anything, really, but definitely not an expert in Christianity, or, nor am I an, an expert in Jesus. But what I do know about Jesus, he sounds like an incredible human being um, who I didn't like him well love thy neighbor as thyself is a really radical injunction it's a great thing for other people (laughs) (laughs) yeah I'm not sure I can do it but I just think it's a great bar to shoot for and it's hard to argue yeah but he's not the first person I mean the the golden rule I mean you know the Jews were saying that thousands of years before the Buddhists I mean they're all say all religions have a kind of don't be a jerk yeah a nasty person. Yeah. I, I have all kinds of bad words for it. But nonetheless, so you, you let me play the skeptic for a second. I think we can all agree that if you look, if you judge Jesus by the, the words that most of us know or the, uh, f- that he is said to have uttered, sounds like a, a phenomenal guy. But why do you have to take the leap to, oh, yeah, he rose from the dead? Well, I don't think everybody does. No, but you do, and I'm interested in how you got to that. Okay, well, again, I have a very ecumenical, I believe the Holy Spirit assumes many forms. And so I don't believe that everybody who doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead is going to burn in hell or anything like that. Do you know what I'm saying? I do, I'm but just I'm, like, I'm, I'm just more curious how you About went. me. How yeah. did I go, yes. for, how did yeah. I go for this? Um, I guess very gradually you begin to see that there are things that happen that don't make any sense. I'll give you one example. Um, when I was doing the exercises, there's a period in Lent where you pray every day to be shown your own sinfulness and all its ugliness. And uh, it's kind of a scary time. It's People often describe odd things happening. I, My mother, long complicated person in my psychological life, uh, I was moving her out of the house I'd grown up in where she left bullet holes all over the house and tried to kill me with a butcher knife. And, and I was feeling very pious and kind of self-righteous that I'm helping this woman. And, and I wound up at her new house, uh, which I bought for her uh, in outside Houston. And um, I had lo- left my Bible, which I was using to pray with, on the airplane. And so I wound up having this huge screaming cuss fight with her where I essentially spoke to her the way no one should ever speak to anyone, especially an 80-year-old woman who's just moved out of the house she's been living in for 50 years. And and, some, and then I had these terrible night terrors, like terrible, like just awful. And I woke up, and I had been given these prayers to pray by my spiritual director in this program. So I, all I can find in her house where we had just moved was her Bible that she had when she was a little girl. So my mother's born in 1921, so she's from like 1926, 27, this whole Bible is. The only passages marked in the Bible were the passages I had been given. Now, my sister was a physics major. I remember calling her. They're marked in blue chalk. And I remember calling her and saying, what are the odds of this? What are the odds I'm sorry, I was given three passages. Two of them were marked. What are the odds? And it's not like they were like, one of them is a very famous psalm. One of them, not so much. So um, you could say, well, that's just a coincidence. But it's a very, it's not like the bullet going, you know, going in the front of your helmet and coming out the back and your head's not touched. It's not that kind of miracle. But it made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And a number of things like that. Uh, that feel, I had a breast cancer scare, it's a long story. Not that I didn't have breast cancer, but I wound up running into a breast surgeon, running into a breast surgeon who whose daughter I had coached in Little League uh, when they were telling me they couldn't operate on me. And he said, oh, I'll do it, like right now. Like bizarre just things where, like, if you had turned left instead of right, coincid- complete coincidences, but things that were very odd. And I guess you one begins to think, you begin to credence those things, and you say, what if 
Um, I know you have the experience of not having talked to somebody for many years, and then you think of them and they call. Has <laughs> that ever happened to you? But, uh, I feel like it has, but I can't think of a specific occasion. It doesn't. People say, oh, it happens to my husband or wife all the time. Well, they, they call all the time, and you think about them all the time. But often I'll have something, you know, very odd. Somebody I haven't talked to in 20 years, and they'll call. And it's just a very strange, it's very odd. So, so I believe there are things that we don't know about. So it's almost, if you think about the odds that Jesus was born, a first century Jewish peasant who pissed off all the religious and civil authorities to such an extent that they killed him. Everybody agrees a bad guy, they killed him. What are the odds we're still talking about him? How likely is that? Think of it. How, how likely is that? Um, not so, I mean, even if you look at other religions, everybody's a prince or a king or he's, he's born on third base. You know, he's Donald Trump. He's got a head start. You know, but this guy is just from Loserville. Every, he's like a hell's angel, his little sect or whatever the hell it was in, in the first century. The coming. It is easier for me to believe that Jesus rose from the dead than it is to believe that the meek will inherit the earth. Given what I know about the meek and the earth, <laughs> hard for me to buy. Tough sell, Lord. But so I guess you begin to believe many things. And the idea of him rising from the dead, and it's not just a resuscitation, you know, but is an actual resurrection. Something has actually happened to him. Uh, so, yeah, I believe that. Okay, so meditation. Are you still meditating? Every day. And what is your meditation practice? Well, I have several things, but in the morning, the first thing I do is a centering prayer. It's just a 20-minute uh, breath count, not breath counting, but just following your breath. How is that prayer? Well, the prayer comes after. Okay. Uh, the prayer that I do— Zen folks do counting the breath and—, and Right. And, and it's so a centering prayer. No, but after there's something I do called the examine of conscience, which is a— part of this Jesuit spiritual practice. Gotcha. So I do that for 20 minutes. And then I do something where it's like, you're supposed to do it at night, but I'm always, I want to watch TV at night, so <laughs> I don't. Uh, so I do this emptiness thing. And then I do this thing where you like go through your day. Wait, emptiness thing? What does that mean? Well, I mean, you know, you're clearing your head when okay. you do centering prayer. Uh -huh. You know, you've got a lot of noise in your head. What about this? What about that? My turkey? What about who's going to come? I need a tree. What am I going to get? You know, will I win this, the lottery? All those things. So you've got all this stuff in your head. So you, the sitting for 20 minutes, uh, sometimes 30. Right now I'm at 20 because I'm lazy. What can I say? Um, then I do something called the examine of conscience where it's like you, you press a a VCR play on your day from the 24 hours before you sat down and you go through your whole day and you look at moments where you think God was present in your life. And the word St. Ignatius uses is you savor those moments, like you literally taste them. And you're supposed to like put yourself physically back in that moment. So, um, Uh, just a sweet exchange with somebody in the bakery. Uh, you know, not, I mean, sometimes it's eating something yummy or you get something you want, but more often it's these small, uh, somebody I was angry with, I just, I had prayed about it and I just had a sense of them and how much I love them and how great they are. And it had nothing to do with any, but I remember that feeling. And so you're supposed to go back to each of those moments and savor them and feel grateful for them. And then you kind of do the same thing and you play your day back and moments where you sinned. And so sin, the way I was taught, is not breaking a rule. It's like any moment you turn away from God. So any moment where you say, yeah, you want to kill everybody on the subway or you, or you jostle somebody harder than you need to or you're brusque with someone you should be kind to, um, or your self, certain kind of self-centered fear for me uh, begins to eat my head up, and I, I just cease to be present. I'm not, uh, I'm not there anymore. I'm in somewhere else. I'm like a dog over a, growling over a bone. So um, 
And you ask for forgiveness for those moments. So anyway, that's the other thing. And then at night, I do all these other prayers for people. Uh, you know, people are sick or, you know, struggling or, you know, for our leaders or something, you know, people at war, people are hungry. You described what you describe as centering prayer, which is actually in some Buddhist traditions, just basic meditation. Sure. Um, you've been doing it for more than two decades now? Yeah, 27 years So, now. So have you... You've, you described your early experiences in a mental institution as, as, you know, it being very, very difficult. Is it still very, very difficult? Some days, but um, it's funny. I just meditated with a friend of mine who's a Buddhist practitioner and uh, sat, sat with him. And uh, he read a little piece of Dharma before we sat where uh, it said it talked about not being attached to how your practice is supposed to be. Great advice. And uh, and I realized that, I mean, again, in this crazy spiritual thing I do, there's something called consolation and desolation. And so you, consolation, clearly better, you know, big chocolate cake better than, you know, bag full of coal. Um, so, uh, but in that moment, I realized that I'd had that kind of grasping mind that the Buddhists talk about, uh, where I, where you, are, you know, that punishing voice that says you're not doing it right, mm-hmm. or I live with that voice. We well, we all do. Yeah, no, but especially in meditation practice. Absolutely, yeah. but, but um, I think I've gotten better just the past five years at realizing there's a great uh, uh, Christian practitioner named Thomas Keating. I don't know if you know about mm-hmm. him. We also we talks a lot about Buddhism, and he's a very ecumenical kind of guy. You can follow him online. Uh, but he's kind of the, you know, one of the big Christian, he's a Cistercian, you know, one of those don't talk dudes, uh, monks. So um, he talks about uh, how even when you don't realize you're being healed by centering prayer, that you are, that it's sort of like... Uh, I, w- I often say to people, it's like lancing a boil, and when you first start to do it, it's like the infection has to drain off. Um, but it's also just in your day, um, he describes it like sediment, that just sitting there, you might not have that clearness at all. And I guess this is where the faith comes in for me as a Christian, that, that God is healing me. or that. But, you know, let's say you're, not, you're listening to us today and you're not a Christian. You think I'm full of horse dookie, which is also good. I I just urge you to try meditation because whether you believe you're being cleared or not, they know that your mood's better, your immune system's better, your stress level's better, your blood pressure's lower, you know, you're smarter, faster, funnier if you meditate. So, you know, whether you believe God is healing you or you believe your big smart mind is is, uh, just being cleared out of its fear, you think of it in psychological terms, it's... Two different models, but it's the same. He believes it's like sediment that it's being cleared, and often, yeah, at the end of a meditation, there's still a lot, there's still noise, and you'll think, "Oh well, I didn't get there," and so that's what was good about that's what's good about sitting with other, you know, Buddhist or Christians or whoever. Yes, um, well, three things. One, and yes, on that last point, absolutely. I I refer to group practice or practicing with anybody other than yourself as, as like an HOV lane, because uh, I do think you, you can move faster. You have somebody there to point out to you where you're in cul-de-sacs. But why? Even if they don't talk, why is it? I know, obviously, you have a serious enough meditation break that you, you've noticed this, that it's better when you meditate with other people. Uh, I'm not even referring specifically to meditation. I'm just referring to doing life together where you're with people who you can talk about your practice but yes, I do think there's something powerful to meditating in a room together. I don't know that I can argue for that as powerfully as I can argue for having some sort of community of people who are like-minded. Even if it, you may have metaphysical disputes, but you're, you are doing some sort of, for lack of a better term, spiritual practice. Because there, there are lots of cul-de-sacs in which you can find yourself. And, and just discussing these things with other people who are doing the same thing, there's just a, there's a real power to that. No question. No question about it. But I, I actually think there's something really uh, of 
of fairy dust, like you say, it's HOV lane. There's something really obviously talking to people, but there's something magic that happens through meditation. I mean, I in a group or yeah, just just even more just two people, even if it's not thirty people. But I, there's something. I started a, I don't know, handful of years ago back at Syracuse University where I teach with my graduate students, uh, a meditation group, just a centering. You know, we just sit like one day a week. Um, and I'm always amazed how much better my practice is. When you're with a group. It's just weird. I have a thing where I get with a group and I, I start having to swallow all the spit in my mouth. And then I get – and then other people – I notice it's like this – it metastasizes around the room and I get super self-conscious. Maybe you should just start drooling. Yeah. Uh, just drool. Just spit. Thank you. Maybe I will. Or just keep a little cup. <laughs> a little like, spit. Like a, a St. Bernard cup. on like kind of tied around my neck. A bib. Yeah. A bib. Yeah. Um, the other two things I was going to say in, in response to the uh, a few paragraphs ago, um, one is in terms of faith. I mean, for skeptics, I would just reposition that as confidence. And I think the science that you rec- you reference that the, the meditation is doing a lot for you it is it's really important to know that you can. Or as my colleague Robin Roberts was told by her meditation teacher. On some sits, you're not going to go to the deep end of the pool, but you're still getting wet. Well, my um, uh, friend of mine who runs the the uh, at, at New York Hospital Cornell Medical Center runs the internship program for shrinks. You know, uh, sent me you know a double bind study maybe three or four years ago. You know, tens of thousands of people over many many years. You reduce med- that meditation is as as useful as as medication, yes, in re- in relieving symptoms yes. of stress and depression. Yes. So, I mean, it's it works, and all you have to do is do it, and you don't even have to do it well or right. <laughs> but that's the and that's the whole. That's why I love this uh, Buddhist friend of mine giving me this little window. I thought, ah, oh, I've been doing that, been doing that for like nine months, where I'm like, why am I not more peaceful? Yes. So that was the third thing I wanted to say in response to because I was on the phone last night. Every couple of months, I get on the phone for an hour with my meditation teacher. And I was my constant lament is I'm not doing it right. And I know that's a that is not a that's not a constructive thing to be mulling. But I just can't help it. Part of it is because I read so many books and interview so many people for this stupid podcast that I get in my head. Everybody's got these different conceptions about how to do it right. I sort of get in my head around it. And he said that he'd been playing with this thing recently of just dropping in a little mantra or a little saying into your meditation of not wanting. Just every once in a while, just say not wanting. And that will reveal to you all these subtle ways in in which you're wanting your current experience to be different. You're wanting more clarity than you're achieving. You're wanting a cookie. And just seeing that is what takes the teeth out of it. It's like they say in recovery, the first step is admitting it. Right. It's also, I think, it's, yeah, that pressing the bar to get a pellet, and that's how we live our lives. Of course. But also, I think the... um, it's like my the, my little friend. Uh, I say little, but she's physically little. Um, with the children who smacked her kid. Um, I mean, she's not the kind of person who smacks her kid. I think it's happened once in you know eight years. But uh, when you correct yourself, there's so much aggression in it. When you criticize yourself, yes, yes, that yes. it increases the noise. Yes. And so that's that's the problem with it. And that's what I said to her about the, you know, I said, look, you know, your kid's five years old. You apologized. You said this was the wrong thing to do. You know, you corrected it. She doesn't remember. She's like a dog or a cat who can talk. You know, I mean, you've gone past it. You're not. It's over. Just just go over it and stop. You're making it bigger in your own head. Mm-hmm. Than it is, and I, and that's often what I think is true for myself with meditation. That anything that has aggression around it um, makes you more attached to your performance. Absolutely, and that's why I mean I know the move. At least the, in my school of meditation, the move is just to make a soft mental note of oh, you're judging, judging, mm-hmm. anger, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and that can 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 
detach you from mm-hmm. that process. It's just that I suck at <laughs> making that move, or I have to make it so many times that I start to doubt whether I'm making it correctly. Uh, nonetheless, it is that is in my experience the move to make. But haven't you always haven't you noticed? Then you'll get in those places where it's sailing. Yeah. Yes, and then I ruin it. <laughs> Because I notice, oh my God, I'm sailing. You're this is n- awesome. You're not ruining it. <laughs> I'm the it. best. You're the best one. <laughs> you're the very best one. <laughs> I want to ask you about a quote that I love from the part from Lit, uh, um, where you're talking about uh, giving birth to your one and only son, Dev. Yeah, young Dev. And you're talking about you're trying to describe what your feeling is in that moment. How old is Dev now? Thirty. Okay, so he's still young, but not a toddler. I have a toddler. Um, God love you. Yeah. Um, he's uh, he's a delight. How old is he? He's almost two. Master of destruction. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, oh it's yeah. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. He's really gotten into ordering me around now. That's it. He started uh, screaming last night that I needed to march, and then if, and then I stopped marching, and he cried. Um, <laughs> so that's how I started marching again. Uh, anyway, you talk, you're talking about your emotion in that room, and you say, quote, joy it is, which I've never known before, only pleasure or excitement. Joy is a different thing because its focus exists outside the self. Delight in something external, not satisfaction or some, uh, not satisfaction of some inner craving. That right. seems to me you are hitting on something. Well, it's huge in Buddhism. The difference between happiness Pleasure. and excitement. Yes, exactly. Well, well, I think for all my entire drinking life. I mean, I got sober. I guess I was. I don't know. Started trying when I was thirty. I guess by the time I was thirty-three. Um, I started putting time together, 32. Um, uh, but I, I, there's, I later found a quote from Merton, um, who... Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton. Catholic... Uh, Trappist monk, yes. um, uh, who also studied Buddhism. Um, uh, and Merton makes a distinction between pleasure and joy and says, if you don't know the difference between pleasure and joy, you haven't begun to live. And I remember the... the uh, for me, the distinction, it always involves – somebody asked me what it was. It always involves others, even if you aren't in the presence of others. It's some uh, not thinking about yourself thing that you're able to kind of, you know, crack the back of. Yeah, there's a book by Jennifer Senior about child uh, rearing called All Joy and No Fun. I disagree with that. Actually, I think it's a tremendous amount of fun, but it's also a ton of joy. And it's not always fun, or it's not always exciting. I mean, I can sit. It's very my, tedious. Yeah, while sitting watching my son take a bath or something like that. But there can be enormous swells of joy, even though it's definitely not fun by any conventional measure, unless like I'm, unless no, we're doing d- something. No, no, it's not fun. It's not fun. It's a lot of repetition. Yeah. A lot of poop. Yeah, there's a ton of poop. A lot of poop, a lot of pee, a lot of food. One of my Buddhist friends said when my baby came, he said uh, he sent me an email that said there's nothing more grounding than handling human feces. Gosh, gee, I wonder where I might have that experience (laughs) now as a single woman. Uh, Well, you can go work in a nursing home. I guess so. So, uh, or when Dev has a kid. Well, actually, now he has a pit bull puppy, so I'm, oh, yeah. I'm a grandmother to a pit bull not, puppy. Not quite yeah, human. Exactly. Uh, so the three books in the PS series were um, uh, The Liar's Club, Cherry, and Lit, but you've also had some volumes of poetry. I've published, I don't know, how many? I don't know, four or five, and I, and I have a book out uh, just out called The Art of Memoir. Right, just out Collins. in paperback, Just right? came out in paper. And... Um, well, let me ask you about that about that book. Um, let me ask you from a very selfish standpoint, because I re- have only written one book, and it was a memoir, and it was also published by HarperCollins, although uh, my next one is not going to be. Um, and I'm actually going to write a sequel. And one of the things that I find interesting that you, because Lit is the first book of yours that I've read, all, although I guess I'm listening to it, so I don't know if that counts as reading. But you do some things where you... Uh, I'm curious how you made it so satisfying in and of itself without having to go back and read the others. And Because I want to write a sequel to 10% Happier, but I don't want people to have to have read 10% Happier in order to read this next book. So, but, And you do some deft things where you tell 
things that were in those previous books and you say, uh, you skip forward if you read those books. or any So any advice for somebody like me who's in this position of wanting to write another memoir but not wanting people to have to go back and, and wanting to be able to sell that memoir as a, as, as a not a sequel that's dependent on having seen the first? Just go ahead and, and do, do the dumb work of writing down uh, everything, the information you think they need to have. I bet you could do it in three pa- three to five pages. It feels forever, forever big. Um, the other thing is to find an organizing principle, and this is one of the, my major suggestions in Art of Memoir, an organizing principle for your new book, which I don't expect you to know before you write it, but that as you put things down, I think you'll find one. Um, a way you're in conflict with yourself, like an inner enemy, and organize it around that inner enemy. So what what is the struggle after 10% happier going forward? And what you're going to do is you're going to start in that struggle, and then you're going to have a little flashback, and it's going to be just put it all in there. Maybe it's three to five pages, and then soldier on and don't think about it. And uh, But the problem is we all – we have that language in our heads from that other book, and it's so delicious to have those sentences standing there you've already written, ready to deliver. And that's the hard part, is just getting your head out of the other book, I think. Yes. Is that a, is that a yeah. many use? No, it's a no. really, it's a, it's a yes. I mean, basically the answer, when I was struggling with writing the first book, one of the people, one of the best pieces of advice I got was just sit down and do the thing. Put some clay on the wheel. Um, and uh, is actually my friend Mark Halperin who wrote uh, the Game Change and so Double brilliant. Down. Yeah, and, exactly. and and it was j- just put some clay on the, and, and it actually took me four years of putting a lot of terrible clay on on rickety wheels and then finally uh, shaping it. Uh, but you really nothing can happen unless you just vomit up what whatever you got. Right. My friend my friend Rodney Crowell uh, was working on a memoir and he said uh, I'll give you some pages and he gave me about thirty pages and I gave him back four. And I said, now write me 150 pages, I'll give you 30. Yeah, that's about the, yeah. I, when I handed in my first draft, it was twice as long as what I ended up publishing. So that's normal. People assume that if they, you know, I threw away 1,200 pages of lit. Whoa, 1,200 pages? Finished pages. Not draft. Finished pages. That's a ton of pages. ton of pages. I threw away, and it took me seven or eight years. It took me a long time. So three memoirs, and then the art of memoir, and a bunch of poetry books. Are you going to do another memoir? Well, isn't that the big question? I'm actually working on a novel now, and I'm trying to finish a book of poems. So, but That's a big leap going into uh, writing a novel. I know, right? Although your, mm, the memoir I've read is quite novel. Novelistic is that even? I've a been word? told. I've been told that they that they read like novels. Yes, and, they do. It and does. I, and I don't know what that means, except that they're not boring. I don't know. Well, that's that. That's, <laughs> that's what, what we're going. For. Yeah, absolutely. I that's think what that's, we're going. Well, for. also, it's so it's it's uh, some of the twists and turns are so like unbelievable. But they, like what? Just the stuff that you listed that your mom did with you. Um, no, she was hair raising. No, I yeah. know she took my kid. Yeah, she played Pulp Fiction for my kid one Thanksgiving. Gave him a gun to play with. I mean, you know, she was she was just a. Well, you found her standing over you with a hat with a hatchet or a. a, a it was butcher, a butcher knife. knife. Yeah, butcher okay. knife, not exactly a hatchet, but in the hatchet family. Yes, absolutely <laughs> sharp. <laughs> she was, yeah. Speaking of sharp, it's been great to speak with you. So fun talking to you. Thanks for uh, thinking of me for this. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Welcome to Pura. 
the most pristine, safe, climate-stable city on Earth. A haven amidst the wreckage. Here, you're safe from heat domes, superstorms, water bandits in the Outer Lands. There's no crime in Pura. No murder, no suicide. And best of all, there's no cost to join us. In Pura, we promise to keep you safe. They killed her! You took everything! In a world that doesn't feel so safe anymore, we're waiting for you. Here, in Pura. The Last City is a new scripted audio drama from Wondery. Enjoy The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City right now, ad-free, on Wondery Plus. Get started with your free trial at wondery.com plus. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.